Welcome to the Odyssey Podcasts. This is Jean Cavellos, Director of Odyssey. Odyssey is an intensive six-week workshop for writers of fantasy, science fiction, and horror whose work is approaching publication quality and for published writers who want to improve their work. Odyssey is held each summer on the campus of St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire. Adult writers from all over the world apply. Only 16 are admitted. Top authors, editors, and agents serve as guest lecturers. For more information, visit www.odysseyworkshop.org. Podcast 43 is an excerpt from David G. Hartwell's lecture at Odyssey 2010 on creating strong titles and other writing advice. The text of this recording is copyright 2010 by David G. Hartwell. The sound recording is copyright 2010 by Odyssey Writing Workshops. I think that much too little time is spent talking about story titles. A reader very often encounters a story title on a page separate from the first page of the story. Unless you are a very thorough person, you do not pick up a magazine or a book of short fiction particularly and simply read it front to back. What you do is you pick it up and you look at the contents page and you say, ah, there's a Neil Gaiman story, I will read that first. Or, there's a Harlan Ellison story, I will read that first. And then after that, and say, and this one has an interesting title. I may not be particularly a fan of the work of that writer or even recognize that writer's name, but that's got an interesting title. And so it is worthwhile workshopping titles. It is worthwhile thinking about titles. Some people tend to think of the title in a kind of rich, deep way that relates to the actual thematic material of the story. Okay? Now, where you can go wrong doing that is if the title means nothing until after you've read the story. If the title means nothing until after you've read the story, you've made a bad choice of title. While we're on the topic, uh, we, can, we can do a title exercise now. Take a piece of paper, write down one or two alternate titles. How we do this in a publishing company, it says in the contract, and it used to say in the contract for all magazines as well, we have the right to retitle your story, period. Okay. If we think Sex Queens of Mars is a better title, that's what we put on it. Okay? <laughs> However, usually that's a threat. I used to have a, a standard title that I would threaten writers with. If they had titled their novel The Name of Their Central Character, which is something that writers do, I would say, well, I don't think the name of the central character is the appropriate name for this book, so uh, I've been thinking about maybe calling it Revenge of the Androids, but if you can come up with a better title, I'd be happy to consider it. Uh, 
Revenge of the Wizards, if it was fantasy, you know. And this would spark a great deal of activity on the writerly end over a period of a couple of days, and usually a number of good titles. Most often we sit around talking with three or four people in a publishing office about what might be the appropriate title for this book. Because appropriate titles do not come out of serious thought. They come out of people basically banging off one another. Uh, it's magic, but it works. You sit around for half an hour throwing out titles. Anything that comes to mind, this is done all the time in publishing. However, if you feel that you wish to title your own story, do a good job of it. <laughs> and when it's sent in, the editor will have no impulse to change the title. What do you think about puns and titles like that, I guess? Puns can work. Puns can work just fine. <laughs> uh, you better not use a pun in a story that's not humorous. Mm -hmm. Because the, the fact of the pun itself will give you uh, a tonal expectation of the story. And if it's not met, it'll create artificial disappointment, where the reader might not otherwise be disappointed, might be perfectly happy. Um, how, how much would you say ironic titles are in vogue now? Not terribly. Unf unfortunately, we are going through a period when uh, satire and irony is not in fashion. And I regret that. One can always find exceptions to any generalization. I mean, the most popular humorous writer in the world is Terry Pratchett. He's a superb prose stylist, a great ironist, and a, and a superb satirist. These, these big trends, they're not so much fashions as big trends that rise and fall over a long period of time and suddenly snap back into focus. Be a little bit careful about titles that are not part of common vocabulary. And here's a digression for you. Because books are bought and put out for sale in stores by the cover. Okay, They are bought on the basis of the cover. The title, the author's name, and the illustration. Not by having read the book. Okay, this is the way the distribution system works. The buyers in the distribution system are presented with many hundreds of books per month. They do not read them, generally speaking. They look at the cover. They say, ah, the new Orson Scott Card novel. We will take 3,000 copies. Okay. And if they are presented with a word in the title that they don't immediately understand, they just don't buy any. I once published a novel by Jerry Pornell and Larry Niven called Oath of Fealty. I have a doctorate in comparative medieval literature. I understand perfectly what that title means. They understood perfectly what that title meant. And when I told them I thought they ought to change it to Loyalty Oath, they gave me a hard time. They refused utterly. And they went out on tour for the book and not one media person could pronounce fealty. And the book distributed half the number of copies that it was targeting for. 
because so many people in the distribution system did not know what fealty meant. You see what you can get when you begin to consider alternative titles. And the possibilities also suggest readings of the story. This is an object of contemplation for both readers and writers. Uh, you know. Good alternative titles suggest good, quote, readings of the story. And if you have an alternative title, it sometimes makes you, the writer, want to revise the story a little bit in a certain way to make that title even more appropriate. And that, that can work, that can help you. I wanted to move on to a slightly more delicate subject, and that is uh, the name of the author. Writing anything raises the question of identity. Adopting a pseudonym means adopting an identity. This is not immediately, intuitively evident, which is why I am saying it. There are a certain number of writers who have adopted pseudonyms and adopted writing identities that have become quite successful and have found that they could not write at all except as that pseudonymous person. Yeah, James Tiptree is a perfect <laughs> example of this, of this fascinating and talented and very weird woman who wrote brilliant short fiction. And then after her pseudonym, her personal identity was revealed and she became a public figure, found herself able to write less and less and, and in the end hardly able to write at all. Very strange, but not rare. There are other reasons to adopt a pseudonym. Writers whose last name begin with Z. <laughs> Note. <laughs> are at the tail end of the alphabet on the bottom shelf in bookstores, okay? Not necessarily the best place to be. The more difficult your name is to pronounce, the more you hit that don't give me an unpronounceable or unfamiliar word prejudice in the market, too. You know, if you have a long Polish name, it's probably wise to shorten it. You don't have to change it, but you might change it. Somebody uh, came up to me and said, well, you know, I have a career otherwise, and I don't necessarily want to have the same identity when I'm writing. Should I use a pseudonym? Sure, if you want. Or use your initials, you know, or uh, another common reason to adopt a pseudonym is your last book tanked. This is an era in which the chain bookstores and the major accounts keep computer records for seven years. If you have a notable failure, it will hamper or prevent the distribution of your next book. If your failure is particularly and egregiously notable, and it can be. It can be even if you've written a really good book. Because it might have gotten a bad package. It might have gotten an inappropriate cover line. It might have gotten an inappropriate catalog description for some reason. 
it might have been uh, published in hardcover the same month as some other book from the company that got all the distribution. And this happens too. When you adopt a pseudonym because of sales, you have to decide whether you're going to try to alibi and build from there, or whether you're simply going to change your name. Whether you're going to, you know, you know, if you're a woman and you like to write really tough adventure, it is possible to adopt a male pseudonym. If you're a guy who likes to write sensitive novels of character, it's really possible to adopt a female pseudonym, because there are still cultural prejudices in the marketplace. It's also possible to write in a kind of gender ambiguous way by using initials or using uh, you know a cross gender name like Lee something like that you know if you're a guy and you want to write you know, women's paranormal romance change your name to Lorelei Smith or something you know uh, somebody who really sounds like they should be the writer of that kind of thing because if you're a guy and you want to write women's paranormal romance, you're dead in the water. <laughs> Unless you adopt a female pseudonym. Now, historically, lots of guys have done that. Lots of guys have done that. Uh, they'll write under their own name. Except in that genre, they'll write under another name. There's a kind of agreement in the marketplace that the publishing distribution system will accept your next work under another name and try it out. When it works, suddenly you're not Megan Lindholm anymore, you're Robin Hobb and you're a bestseller. Megan Lindholm was an excellent writer. She was writing absolutely first-rate fantasy books. But a couple of her books didn't sell well. And so she and her agent got together and dreamed up another name, and she wrote a different kind of fantasy novel under the other name. And it was bigger and more ambitious, and boy, you know, she became a best-selling writer. That's what it's supposed to work like. It doesn't always work that way, but basically the pseudonym is what gives you a second chance. Sometimes a third chance. If you're a guy writing women's paranormal romances, you really don't want your biography out there. You want the pseudonym to be sort of closed. And you don't want to say in public that, you know, all the Lorelei Smith correspondence should go to Joe Banks. Uh, <laughs> you know. It's a case-by-case -case thing. You have to decide based on who you are, what you are doing, what you aspire to. Always remember about aspiring to things. So the pseudonymity thing is, is, is a kind of object of contemplation. You have to think about it. You have to think about all the facets of it. Uh, you, know, you have to think about your own feelings about your own identity. And that's often, as I say, that's often elided until it's too late. <laughs> and what I'm saying is, that, you know, no, no, think about that kind of stuff first. And think about what your what your comfort zone is, what your comfort level is, and who you who you want to be, and whether you God knows whether you want to be five different names. You could wish to do five different things. And, uh, this is possible too. The text of this recording is copyright 2010 
by David G. Hartwell. The sound recording is copyright 2010 by Odyssey Writing Workshops.